0: In this episode of AvTalk, Etihad takes its money and goes home. NASA gets ready for the total eclipse, we discuss some of our favorite airports, and we learn from Dan Kierna what it's like to be an airport operations supervisor at one of the busiest airports in the world. Welcome to episode 12 of AvTalk. Can you believe we made it to, I know, I feel like we start every episode just amazed that we've made it this far. We're up
1: to a dozen. A dozen. Do, Who should we, would have ever thought? Should we get like cupcakes or? When are we going to stop being surprised that we've hit an episode number?
0: Next episode.
1: 13 definitely, definitely yeah. the one to hit. That, yeah. that's,
0: that's the milestone.
1: Yeah. Lucky 13.
0: <laughs> Speaking of lucky, we're getting really good at these transitions. Speaking of lucky or, or not lucky at all. Air Berlin. You blew fi- the transition. I, well, you know, I, gu- I guess we'll have to just go back and do it again. Air Berlin filed for insolvency today. Womp womp. They Etihad said thanks. We've dumped a ton of cash into you, but we didn't get anything out of it, and so we're leaving.
1: <laughs> we're is, taking our money with we're us. Take,
0: we're taking. We're going home.
1: We have set enough money on fire in Europe. So Air Berlin is a weird airline. Over the past couple of years, they've never really. Truly been able to decide what they want to be when they grow up. Do they want to be a low cost carrier competing with the likes of Ryanair and Eurowings, and I guess level on the long haul side? Or do they want to be a full service carrier and compete with the British Airways and the Air France of the world? And they kind of tried to do both at the same time. And unsurprisingly, that didn't work out for them. And now they are truly, completely, really out of money this time. Well, not quite. Because the, the German
0: government stepped in and said, we'll give you a loan,
1: yes, a, a they, bridging they, loan. They got a three-month bridge loan, I think, to keep it going so the airline doesn't just simply collapse overnight and strand a bunch of people in a bunch of places. But it's looking now like Lufthansa and possibly EasyJet are going to both pick apart the pieces of Air Berlin that they each want, and the rest will kind of fall away. So, so do you think that that Lufthansa will take the long haul stuff, and then EasyJet will take the intra-European flying? I'm not so sure what's going to happen because right now, Lufthansa actually wet leased, I think, 20 Air Berlin A320s to operate short haul for Eurowings. So there's all kinds of weird tentacles going on. So right now, Lufthansa's vested interest is to keep Air Berlin going. To support the leased aircraft that are operating for Eurowings. You still with me? I think so. So you've got
0: an airline inside of an airline, leasing capacity from another airline that went bankrupt. So they're keeping afloat an airline to keep another airline afloat so that they have planes.
1: Exactly. You've okay. connected all the dots. Excellent. But it's looking like Eurowings is going to try to probably take the 330s from Eurowings, if I had to, had to guess, since EasyJet is all 320s, they'll probably just absorb the 320s from Air Berlin. And at the same time, Air Berlin is leasing A320s from Alitalia, which is another had invested airline that never makes any money. So the whole thing is kind of... Preposterous, and I'm not sure if, where does Nikki fit in. It doesn't. Okay, sort of. It, it's, it's they tried to spin them off, but nobody wanted them, so now they're just kind of there. Complicated things because there is isn't Air Berlin using Nikki planes to fly
0: their leisure routes, and and Indeed, that's part of the are. other. They they kind of had this side charter bit. Not, not charter, but kind of this side leisure business, a la
1: Tui or. What's the other one? Thompson. Right. This is so all Air, sorts of- Air Berlin levels. just truly had no idea what it is it wanted to be. Low cost, full cost, leisure, business, long haul, short haul, and now they're going to be nothing. But fear not if you're listening and you have an Air Berlin fight coming up sometime later this summer. They're not going to stop operating. They have the money to keep going for a couple of months, but- Maybe don't go out of your way to book a new Air Berlin flight in the near future. Yeah.
0: Well, and and
1: yeah, <laughs> I'd I'd say that's that's solid advice. Yeah, maybe stay away from any airline that Etihad has invested in because they seem to be cursed. Yeah, that's good money after
0: bad for for a while. So that's you know one of the one of the big drivers is the fact that you know Etihad was basically propping them up. In a certain Not sense. basically, they were. Well, I
1: mean, and and so now w- without that money, it's Air you know, Berlin just poof. It also didn't help that they were supposed to years ago at this point move into their gleaming, shiny, brand new airport, the BER, and there still isn't the date for that new airport to even open. It It, went, it was supposed to open
0: in originally. I mean, it it was something – Get this
1: date right. People are going to yell at you no, if you don't get it right. It, p-
0: p- please, somebody let us know because I don't have the date in front of me. But a, a long time ago, years a ago. A very long time ago. And, and it was just one thing after another. And there's still no date to – it just amazes me. It, it It's going to end up like one of those just, you know, forgotten – not forgotten, but just left projects, I feel like.
1: Right. So that's another thing that really hurt Air Berlin is that they – weren't able to really expand as they had planned a few years ago, since their current airport Teagle, is um, not a good airport. It is way over capacity, and they just never got into their new home, which is kind of a problem. Yeah, I
0: mean it, it's we. I mean we talked about it well in a couple different episodes, but how you know carriers that are trying to expand are having issues, like WOW and and Iceland are having issues because you know Keflavik so cramped for space oh awful at that, that you run out of you know you run out of places to just put planes they've turned hallways into gatehole areas yeah so i mean it, it, that's that's one of the things that, you know the the space available quickly you know eclipses the amount of people that you've got there so, hey speaking of eclipses what about them there's one coming
1: up on monday I've heard this many, many, many times. In the so, past week. It, if if you haven't
0: heard anything about the eclipse, I'm shocked and surprised, but that's okay. That's not what this is about. What this is about is NASA's got two planes that are pretty awesome planes in their own right. The WB fifty-seven Canberra, and we'll put a picture in show notes because they look like a plane that wasn't so much designed as kind of cobbled together but they look really cool. And NASA, instead of just sitting on the ground content to see the eclipse through telescopes or those cool glasses that you can buy, they've decided to attach a bunch of sensors and cameras and and things like that to these two planes, and they're basically going to fly under the totality of the eclipse to, to lengthen the time that they can study these things. And so there's two planes, registrations N926NA, and N nine two seven NA, and they'll be flying under the eclipse at a pretty high altitude, above fifty thousand feet, is, is where these planes are, are flying. So that that's going to be a, a cool thing on Monday, besides being able to to see the eclipse through most of the United States.
1: So I haven't been following this all that much. Sure. What is it that they hope to learn from flying over the eclipse that that the moon does indeed cover the sun? The Yes, I know that. Yes it does.
0: <laughs>
1: now the the
0: idea is that they'll they'll be able to better study whatever they're trying to there there are a number of things that they're trying to learn all of which I am not particularly knowledgeable about. So I I won't say the wrong thing and give people the the wrong information. But what I will do is do some research before we publish and then put it in the show notes why NASA is doing these flights. But you will be able to track them on Monday the 21st of August. Then that's all that really matters. And that's all that, that that's the
1: important thing that I that I care about. Right. But if you're booked on one of those fancy sightseeing eclipse flights, enjoy, I guess. mm
0: mm-hmm. Mhm. I mean the last time Alaska retimed one of their flights between I think it was Anchorage and Hawaii. I think it was Seattle and Hawaii. And they retimed one of their flights to to make sure that they could see it was a partial eclipse, but it was it was still pretty cool. So I'm you know, they're they're night. Nice. They're neat and, and you know, that's something that I think a lot of people are interested in and we'll have, I'm sure, much more coverage than we ever asked for. So much coverage.
1: Speaking of things that get a lot of coverage, yes, Boeing did something pretty freaking cool last week. They did that, of course, happened mere hours after we recorded. Of podcast. course it did. Of course it did. Why wouldn't it? Why wouldn't it? So, so yeah, go ahead. So Boeing had to test a new seven eight seven engine. Which one was it exactly? It is the Rolls Royce Trent one thousand ten. Ooh. 10. That 10. makes sense. All capitals,
0: capital T, capital E, capital N.
1: 10. Oh, cool. So they had to endurance test it basically, do a long endurance flight. What was it, 13, 14, 15 hours? So they. Yeah, I mean, the total flight was 18. 18. So it's a long flight. And I guess you have a couple options when you have a long flight. You can fly almost all the way to the other side of the planet. You could do a bunch of circles over Seattle, or as Boeing decided to do, you can draw a picture of an airplane in the sky indeed you can and that's that's exactly what they did so they flew all the way from seattle out to where did they start like over wisconsin they they started over the upper peninsula of michigan and then they turned back south they drew a, a wing they even got the raked wing tip down drew, drove drove flew all the way down to the middle of the continent and then suddenly a, a, a 787 started to take shape yeah
0: yeah i mean it was it was pretty fun to I mean, a lot of people ended up watching on our site and afterwards so that that was a really cool thing to to watch it kind of come to life as as it was going and they also apparently got a lot of good data on their etops tests so that's you know from a from a purely the plane being safe and and able to enter service it was a it was a success
1: yeah, so Bo- it's not the first time Boeing's drawn cool things in the sky. They actually drew the numbers seven eight seven in the past, I think, or did they draw? the It was seven eight seven, and then
0: the Boeing. It was the, uh, the, Bo- it, was the Bo- it was together.
1: So it was the yeah, Boeing was logo cool. and seven eight seven. The
0: recently, when they had to do an endurance test with the the Max, the seven three seven Max, they drew Max. So that that was a pretty cool one. And they've also so, done uh, a big 12 as uh, supporting if, the Seattle Seahawks.
1: If anyone from Airbus is listening, and we know you are, you got to draw something cool in the sky. I mean, Boeing's eating your lunch here. I keep pushing for that. I would like to see... Somebody came up with a,
0: an amusing
1: yeah, <laughs> yeah, response. Yeah, they did.
0: <laughs> but we won't say what it was, but it, it's out there if if you want to look up what, what the, the joke response that has made the rounds on twitter and facebook so that was was a good one that was cute but the yeah the 18 18 hours to draw a 787 over 22 states so i mean just my whole thing is what what is uh, what are the pilots doing i mean obviously they're you know
1: monitoring but that flying for hundreds of miles and then turning the autopilot heading dial ever so slightly ever so slightly but they did increase altitude to go over some storms for a little bit. That must have been exciting. <laughs> hey, look, the weather radar's got something on it. <laughs> nice. Speaking of nice, I posed the question on, on Twitter again. Like, and that was your mistake. It, that was my mistake. But my question was just random question. I think I was bored at work. Not that I'd ever be bored at work. Um, yeah, I think they listen. It was during but, lunch. Um, I was so busy, yeah, it was during launch. What are your top five favorite airports and why? Just a random question, and my list, I think I panic answered my own question, was <laughs> JFK, because you know it's my home airport, and mm-hmm. I can get pretty much anywhere in the world nonstop because we're awesome. Except for Singapore. Detroit, because anyone who's ever been to the X ex- Northwest Delta Terminal at Detroit will probably tell you it's the nicest airport they've ever been to in the country. Yep, Tokyo Haneda, not Narita, Haneda, because it's like an aviation wonderland, and it's just absolutely beautiful. It's like a museum that happens to have airplanes. Long Beach, California, because it doesn't even feel like you're at an airport, you're just like kind of at a chill restaurant that has glass windows and planes outside. It's really nice. And Doha, because of the creepy teddy bear. <laughs> okay.
0: I mean, I, I suppose that's as good as reason at any. Yeah, why not? All right, all right. So what about, what about you? All right, I will go in, I guess, descending order to make the eventual transition into our next segment make a little bit more sense. So Hong Kong?
1: Oh, ah, yes, that is, oh, that's an airport I definitely should have had on my list and forgot.
0: J- just because, I mean, it's... It's amazing. It's amazing. It's an amazing airport. If you have a chance to fly through Hong Kong, I highly suggest you do. Have some dumplings. Always have. that. I mean, that's a good rule anywhere in the world, but especially I have in Hong Kong. dumplings for lunch. See? Let's see. Hong Kong, Helsinki. Oh, good one. Sauna, steam room. It, it, sauna and steam room. And I mean, it's not a huge airport. It's easy to get through. It's clean. I like that Nordic kind of look and feel. And I, the, it's got a great lounge. So that's that's a good one. And it's also really nice for spotting because there's just huge windows and then you can kind of get around because, well, it's not that big. Let's see. I only have four on my list. I should pick a fifth. Yep. Okay. We'll get there. All right. So Hong Kong. Hong Kong. Helsinki. Helsinki. Stockholm. Stockholm. Never been. Well, I mean, we're based in, in Stockholm, so travel there on a regular basis. But I, I like it because, again, kind of small. It's got a good feel to it. Uh, you can get around and see a lot of the fields. But it, it's also very, it's kind of got an eclectic mix of, you know, things passing. It's got, you know, like Thai airways on one gate, a rocky airways on another, and then just a row of SAS. So it, it's one of those things where it's kind of a, an eclectic mix, which is always nice. I'm going to go with your Detroit. Because you're yes. right. Because you're right. And, and also the, the tram that runs up. I mean, it's just, that's cool.
1: Little known fact, they made me honorary conductor way back when. I feel like that's a story that we need to hear, but maybe not right now. <laughs> Another day.
0: And then my favorite airport is O'Hare. Whoa. Because A, it's my home airport. So there's that. But also,
1: I, I think O'Hare gets a bum rap from a lot of people. Rightfully so. I mean, it's a nice airport, but anytime I change planes there, it's like it's just a bad day. I think O'Hare gets a bum rap from a lot of people because they have to change planes there. Exactly. And <laughs> it's it's always Chicago's fault why everyone else is late. Yeah, well that that that's a fair point. If it's not New York screwing up your day, it's Chicago. It some days it's Dallas. Eh. Throwing Dallas under the bus, I guess.
0: But no, but I I do think O'Hare is a great airport, not only because there's there's a lot there, but just because I'm a fan of history and a, and there's a lot of history at O'Hare, mostly good, some not so good. Where does the graveyard sit on that spectrum? So there's three graveyards. Oh, a lot of people don't know there's three graveyards. So most quick,
1: airports don't have any.
0: Most airports don't have any. Some airports, and we'll we'll put this in the show notes. But there's one airport that has, I think it's Atlanta, has two headstones in the runway. Uh. We'll double check. There's an airport that has two headstones in the runway. Answer in the show notes or podcast at FR24 if you know the answer. But I sure don't. <laughs> quick history lesson on O'Hare. There were three three cemeteries that have sat on airport property. One they moved way back when when they first built the East-West runway. And that got moved way back. And then as part of the O'Hare modernization program, starting in the early 2000s, they relocated a cemetery and kind of walled off a second one. So if you go to O'Hare and you take the South Cargo Access Road, you can actually find your way into, you can view the cemetery and it's kind of surrounded by buildings and runways now. So we, (laughs) well, we should have asked Dan about this after a quick break. We're going to talk with Dan Kierna, who is the airport operations supervisor at O'Hare. And he has a lot of great insight on what happens on the airfield and some strange things that happened, and then what happens when there's an emergency. So we'll be right back after a quick break. And welcome back. We are joined by Dan Kierna, who is an airport operations supervisor at O'Hare. And for anyone who doesn't know what that means, we're going to let Dan fill you in a, a little bit more in specifics. But I will begin with broad strokes saying that Dan is one of the people who drives around in a vehicle on the airfield, making sure that the airport is operating as it should. Dan, welcome.
1: Thanks for having me, guys. I really appreciate it. Hey, Dan. Thanks for joining.
0: So so let's take a minute and let us know kind of what you do on a on a daily basis to, to keep you know, one of the busiest airports in the world (laughs) world moving. This might take a while.
2: (laughs) That's kind of a loaded question because at an airport, no day is actually the same. So usually on a day-to-day basis, we have a a few things that we have to do for the airport to pretty much make sure that we're in uh, federal compliance with the FAA. So I work uh, during the day shift, which would be uh, 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. And our job primarily is we inspect all of the taxiways uh, during the day. We'll drive the north side and the south side, as we call it at O'Hare. So we'll have two inspectors and we'll drive every single of the taxiways and make sure that, you know, there's nothing that can impede an aircraft, any potholes, things of that nature that would be uh, detrimental. And we also do quick runway checks during the morning so there'll be two of us we'll contact the tower we'll jump out there on the runway and we'll do a quick one pass usually 40 50 miles an hour and that's in conjunction of overnight where they do a more detailed inspection of the runways so that's in a real general terms that's kind of my day sort of <laughs> how fast do you typically
1: get up to when you do a runway inspection?
2: Well, it depends on traffic and the kind of gap that the tower will give us. We'd like to try to go about 40 to 50 if we have, you know, a lot of time. But there's some times where they tell us we have a three to four mile final and we'd like to do it in one shot rather than try to wait for the next gap, which we're not sure how long that's going to be. So sometimes it goes a little faster. I won't say how fast we've gone, but it's gone faster. <laughs> <laughs> so fast. So fast. Yeah, it's just a quick, uh, it's just a broad stroke. So we just go down the runway, one ops person on one side of the center line, the other ops person on the other side of the center line. And we're just looking for obvious stuff. Is there, you know, is there a pavement blowout? Is there a lot of FOD, you know, foreign object debris? Is there anything out there that could be, you know, a serious consequence to an aircraft?
1: What are the typical kinds of things you find on the runway or taxiways or really anywhere on the airport?
2: most of the time it's fod. it's is which is a fancy term for you know garbage anything that doesn't belong on and so that could be um anything from a plastic bag. It could be a bolt. A lot of times we find mail. Anything that could be sucked up into an engine or be run over and pop a tire that's going to cost the airline or the airport any money. So most of the time it's that stuff. Other times we find animals. You know, We chase coyotes or something like that because obviously if an airplane hits that, that can be a bad day for everyone. Coyotes in Chicago? uh, Yeah, we have coyotes. Well, you know, O'Hare is this big green spot in an area, you know, of urban. So there's a lot of animals that, you know, gravitate towards it. And there's not a lot of natural predators out there. So the coyotes find their way in through, you know, drainage, you know, pipes and culverts or dig under the fence. And, you know, we try to uh, keep them out. Do you have something like a special animal unit that comes
1: out and, and handles these situations, or are you actually going out and chasing the coyote?
2: <laughs> well, we it's a it's like a two pronged effort. We do actually have the U.S. Department of Agriculture uh, wildlife specialists on field at the airport. They're not a twenty four hour a day. They're usually there seven to like six. But they'll chase coyotes, they'll haze birds, anything wildlife re- related to the airport, they, they kind of take care of and we assist them. But they also have the ability to get rid of the animals where we don't. Our job is to pretty much just try to keep them away from any uh, any traffic or keep them off the runways. and then So we work together as a team.
1: Yeah, wildlife removal is definitely an issue here in New York too. I know the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey at JFK has a unit out there in the spring and early summer that basically just removes turtles from the runway Wow! so hopefully you don't have a turtle issue like that but (laughs) we don't have a turtle
2: issue (laughs) those shells are
1: hard and you don't want them getting sucked into an engine and we'll end up with situations with dozens or hundreds of turtles on a runway
2: yeah birds and you know wildlife strikes is definitely something that's caught a lot of attention at you know after uh sully and all that situation so you know it's something that we definitely pay attention to we do have a couple of you know tools in our arsenal we have bird bangers which are just kind of like fireworks that we shoot out that will chase birds away from any area so that's kind of they're flying around in a rival path or something like that we can shoot those bird bangers in the area and hopefully that'll get the birds up and moving in the right direction away from any aircraft interesting dan we we always ask our
0: guests that we have on who have interesting aviation-related jobs about the the strangest things that they see in <laughs> in their jobs. When we when we had Andrew Poron, we asked him about things that they carried, and and his was two hundred twenty-five thousand pounds of ketchup. So, of course, let's ask you: What are some of the the stranger things that you experience?
2: Oh man, I think the strangest thing that's ever happened that I can think of off the top of my head is we actually had someone jump the airfield fence and was running along one of the runways and we got the call to go find out if this was actually a a real occurrence and there was a gentleman running along the runway and as I rolled up to him and spoke to him he told me he was claiming to uh, catch his flight and that he was looking for his airplane and uh, at least he was in the right spot. And as we chased him away and as the police started to respond as well, he actually ran up to an Eagle envoy aircraft and flagged it down and trying to hitchhike onto the aircraft. It was just taxiing on the taxiway. And as this happened, as the aircraft stopped, the police and us all kind of converged right in front of this aircraft and he was apprehended by the police and whatnot as every window in the aircraft had cell phones in it looking right down on us as we found that now with every incident, I think I've found myself on a lot of uh, YouTube and uh, Facebook pages, you know, because, you know, everyone's first inclination is always to take out their cell phone and take a picture, or video, what's going on, you know, something unique like that. But that was, that was one of the more unique events that's happened. But did he catch his flight? He caught a trip to the Chicago police department, but he didn't catch any, any flight that I'm aware of.
1: Oh, that's no good. No. You don't want to be that <laughs> <Okay>. guy. No. <laughs> so- <laughs> <laughs> don't do that so at
0: least he was wearing clothes i mean bright siding it here
2: yeah he he did have clothes oh, on. there you go he did he was he was bleeding profusely from his uh run-in with the barbed wire fence as he went over the top of our airfield perimeter fence but yeah he he did have clothes on which which was a godsend
0: yeah yeah huh. so so kind of jumping back to the you know being on camera in you know, kind of in, in incidents and situations. You were on the field and, and on the job the day of the American Airlines seven six seven had the uncontained engine failure. Yes, a while ago, and that report recently just came out. So I was hoping that you could kind of talk to us about your experience there and kind of what your. I mean, obviously, we know what the fire department's responsibility is, but kind of what, what's your responsibility as as an airfield? You know, as an airport operations person yeah uh, what are you what are you guys doing during that?
2: We're kind of the Swiss Army knife. We don't have any specific role. we're more uh support for c f d or Chicago the fire department and also the police department. so our primary role is we're gonna start closing down pavement and and kind of containing the area so like what happened this past fall with American, as soon as that aircraft was on fire and was coming to a halt, the airfield actually kind of shuts down to give the fire department an opportunity to go directly to the scene you know, without having a to call tower, without having to cross, you know, open runways. So what happened is they'll temporarily shut down traffic. So that's done by the people in the FAA tower. That's done. We have what they call like a, a crash phone. So when there's an emergency, they'll, they'll ring the crash phone that goes to every rescue house on the airfield plus ops. So that way they ring it down and they say, you know, American, whatever. And it gives a location, the situation and when it's a crash fire, as it was the that incident, the airfield shuts down and they tell the fire department, go directly to the scene. Our job is to pretty much not get in the way of the fire department because they're needed to be there a little bit before we are. But that day, what happened is I was one of the first people there. My job is start to be escorting other fire and police units to the scene that might not have been familiar with the airfield and whatnot. Because as an operations supervisor, we have escort privileges on the airfield, which means that we can take anyone who doesn't have privileges to drive on the airfield around behind us. And so what I did was grab a, a bunch of vehicles and took them to the the scene and let the fire department do their thing. Our job was kind of just to corral the people away from the aircraft. We put them on an adjacent taxiway because most people's first thought in an incident like that, it's just run. Well, in an air, airport, it's a pretty unsafe environment for people to be running around on. So we try to corral them and close any pavement so that way there's no people running onto an active runway, which then could create even more havoc.
1: So, so, I guess so here is a big enough airport where you could have a pretty sizable chunk of it closed down for an emergency like the 767, but the other half is completely unaffected or reopens immediately?
2: Yeah, that's essentially kind of what happened is at O'Hare, we separate the airfield into the north side and the south side. So the terminal core is loosely, you know, the middle ground. So anything north of that is considered the north airfield, anything south. This incident happened on the south airfield, so temporarily what they'll do is they'll, they'll close it down to traffic, and then it's our job to go out and sweep the runways to make sure no one left anything on the runways and reopen them to traffic. So that's essentially what they did is, did is reopen the north side of the airfield so that we could you know, start departing and arriving traffic to not create too much of an impact and the south side was impacted a little bit longer until you know, we had things more under control, the fire was out and things started to calm down a little bit. Then we started to reopen pieces of pavement systematically after that to try to you know, to get the operation flowing a, a little bit more smoothly. Yeah, still can't
1: believe some of the images that came out of that where the wing practically melted right there on the runway.
2: Yeah, the, the wing melted, the pavement melted, They actually, after the aircraft was removed, there was pretty much an armada of construction equipment and that came down and they took out about a foot worth of pavement right under where that aircraft wing was that was saturated with gas, fuel, fuel gas, foam, water, all of that. So the pavement was ruined and they had to to remove the pavement and repave it over before we could reopen the runway. Wow.
1: So I want to talk about O'Hare a little bit as... Airport. How many runways do you have?
2: We have four hundred and seventy-eight. <laughs> <laughs> Some days it feels like that. <laughs> we have we have eight. We have eight active runways. Eight active runways. Are you
1: using all eight on any given day, or what's your typical flow rate?
2: No, we usually use five or six. Since we've been in this O'Hare modernization program, we've gone to a primary uh, east-west configuration. So what we have is what they try to do is east flow, which is aircraft landing from the west going to the east, or we have west flow, which is coming over the city from the eastbound bound to the lake and landing to the west. So that primary uh, uses the the parallels, which would be 27 right, 27 left, would be the two arrival runways on the north side. And then on the south side, we would uh, depart 28 right, land 28 center, and they also depart 22 left. So I guess that would be six use at a time during West Flow and usually no more than that. Wow.
1: It's a lot going on at any one given time.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's a synchronized dance, it seems like some days. <laughs> yeah.
0: and, and we're finally getting regular A380 service at O'Hare that is so uh, yeah the word on the street nice. yeah so you know the british airways is finally starting in the end of may next year will have a they're changing one of their daily services to the a380 so that'll be that'll be nice does, does that affect you at all because i know that there's been there was a lot of work done around the 747-8 so that lufthansa could bring it in and then taxi it around the airfield is there any I guess remediation that needs to go on as far as the A380 is concerned from your perspective?
2: Yeah, the airport was designed around a 747 design, but a 747 400. So that's kind of why the Dash 8 is a little bit problem because the taxiways just aren't big enough. You know, the distances to the side of them so that, you know, the wingtip clearance. The 380 is a little larger. So the taxiways that it can taxi on are limited. And when it does, there's parallel taxiways that can't be used, and it's just, it's a big airplane. And as big as O'Hare is, sometimes it feels pretty small. Is it going to require a follow-me vehicle every day, or are they going to be able to navigate on their own? They'll be able to navigate on their own. It'll just need to be some coordination between the tower and us just to make sure that there's a service road that kind of has to, the traffic has to be stopped on and a parallel taxiway will have to, you know, hold any traffic on it while it's transitioning from the gate either to a hard stand or, you know, to a group six, which is the design group for the 380 group six capable taxiway.
1: So it's a bit of a hassle, but not the end of the world.
2: No, no, not the end of the world. But yeah, just a little bit of a hassle. Not actually as bad as Lufthansa transitioning from T5 to T1, but I guess we'll see when May comes here next year.
1: Yeah. So O'Hare, Chicago, it gets cold there in the winter. I've been there (laughs) on some bitter cold days and in some poor weather. Sure does. No offense to any of the fine people at O'Hare, but you guys seem to have a meltdown anytime it snows more than a little bit. What is up with the design of O'Hare where... All the aircraft have to be de-iced at the gate, which
2: is a huge problem. That is a huge problem. They're coming up with ways to try to solve that issue. That does create a problem for aircraft having to, you know, sit and wait for an open gate. In the next few years, there'll be a large de-icing pad that's going to open on the west edge of the airfield that will hopefully help some of that. From what I have heard or been told is that, not all aircraft will be deiced there. There'll still be some deicing on the gates, but hopefully it'll be enough that some more gates will be opened and that way it'll help with the delays and some of the uh, holding that takes place.
1: That's really good news to hear. I, I, I'm sure you know better than I do, but whenever you de-ice a plane at the gate, that means whatever aircraft are coming in have no gate to get to. So that's really good news to hear that they're actually working on a solution for that.
2: Yeah, hopefully in a couple of years, that'll be a thing of the past.
1: So I mentioned follow-me vehicles before for the A380, and do you ever actually get to act as that follow-me vehicle?
2: We do in some cases. A lot of times, not for taxiing aircraft as much, but for anything that's being tugged between maybe a gate and the hangars. Sometimes if it's a conventional slow-speed tug, we will escort them. The only sort of escort that we doing do is with Lufthansa, when they bring in the 747-8, they drop off the passengers at the international terminal and they transition to the terminal one where United has their terminal. And we will clear the route before they transition over there because of the wingtip clearance and stuff like that. We're just making sure that nothing is going to touch their wings or hit anything. So We'll clear that route. But otherwise follow me vehicles very few and far between. Good to know. Your job is something that we see all
0: the time when we're at the airport. Yeah. But it's kind of a kind of always a mystery is, you know, what what are those guys up to? So it's it's really great to have you on and, and chat and, and learn more about what you're doing to to keep the airport moving. So thanks for joining us.
2: You know, I really appreciate you guys having me on. It was great to, you know, kind of peel back the curtain a little bit on ops. It's one of those things we're kind of behind the scenes, you don't really see us until something actually goes wrong.
1: Yeah, Dan, well, I hope to never see you on my next trip through O'Hare. But <laughs> oh, in the meantime, on. maybe we can hook him up with an ADSB transmitter so we can follow him on flight radar and see what he's up to. There you go. We'll, we'll work on that. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I don't know if I want you guys to see what I'm doing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> fair enough. Well, thanks for joining thanks us. Thanks so much, Dan. Thanks a lot, guys. Appreciate it. Bye-bye. It's one of those
0: things that you never think about until you're looking at one of the the trucks or you see the the bright orange lights kind of flashing or you see them flying down the runway and you think,
1: that'd be a fun job. It would be. I'd love to do a ride-along with them one time. I did a quick ride-along with, I guess, his counterpart out in Manchester in the UK and the spectrum of stuff they cover in a single day is just crazy. Like you said, there's just – it's a little city, basically, that you're supervising, and anything can go wrong or happen, and what they do is just kind of amazes me. Yeah, it, it's that's it's pretty impressive.
0: And speaking of impressive, at least I think it is, Jason, do you want to take this one?
1: So, the site <laughs> has a new receiver that Ian was kind enough we to, do. to spoil me on before the show, in a most unusual place that I'm guessing no one listening to this podcast would even come close to guessing. Uh, um, it's in. In how do I pronounce the town? We will say Pripyat, I believe, is how you pronounce it, or at least I believe that's close to
0: how you pronounce it.
1: So, in 1986, I think, just a couple of months before mm-hmm. I was born, actually less than a month before I was born, the Chernobyl power plant exploded. In Pripat, or however you pronounce that city. It killed a lot of people. It is still, to this day, I think, actually, now is it the second worst nuclear catastrophe after Japan? I'm not quite sure. After Fukushima? I don't know. It's up there. It's really really bad. bad. (laughs) The entire area is still in this exclusion zone, which you're not technically allowed to travel to for an extended period. You can go there for tourism purposes. But they're putting... They have construction crews putting this huge concrete sarcophagus over the reactor building to prevent the ceiling from collapsing in on itself and spreading more nuclear waste. And you're probably wondering, why are we talking about that? Well, that's where the newest receiver is. Indeed, 1.4
0: kilometers, a little less than a mile to, from the, the reactor site to where the receiver is located.
1: How? how? How
0: is this even a thing? Well, there's a warehouse and the receiver is installed on top of the warehouse. So the, as you mentioned, they're building a new, it's called the new safe confinement.
1: What a name. Over the,
0: the actual power plant to keep the, the radiation in and make sure that, you know, things don't happen to, to make it unsafe outside of that area. So around the nuclear plant, is 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 Pripyat, which is a ghost town. I mean, it was evacuated two days after, and no, I mean, no one lives there. In a
1: heartbeat, evacuated.
0: Yeah, I mean, just gone. I mean, and and we'll post some. We'll post a link to to our blog that we've got some photos and things like that of the the ghost town. I mean, it's just this amazing thing. There's still the, the Ferris wheel. There's a gymnasium, a, a pool. It, it's kind of fascinating to see. But so the why is the receiver there? The receiver, well, the receiver is being hosted by someone who's part of the, the team that's working on the, the new safe confinement. But it's really there to provide better, better coverage in North Ukraine, South Belarus, as well as increase our MLAT coverage. So one of the important, as far as we're concerned, and interesting things that happens near Kiev is the Antonovs fly out of there, out of Gostomel Airport, and they don't have ADSB yet as much as we would love to have that. So we're talking about the AN-124s, the AN-22, and of course the massive AN-225. So a receiver in that area is going to help with more MLAT coverage. So we're able to track those fights at a lower altitude. That's cool. And we have a a new receiver in a ghost
1: town. I'm not sure if I'm more surprised by this one or like some of the weird receivers out in the Troll Research Facility in the middle of nowhere Antarctica. Like I'm not sure which one is more impressive. I I think they're both impressive. One of them's got to be more impressive, and I'm pretty sure it's this one. Okay, I would go with Troll, but that that's just me. I don't. People live there. Nobody lives in, in this exclusionary radioactive wasteland. That's fair. I still think they're both impressive. The Troll Research Facility is a great name. It. it I've, the Norwegians have a way of naming things. What else we got in Russia? Well, this
0: isn't in Russia. So n- please don't – we don't need angry uh, email about Russia and Ukraine. That That's the last thing we need. But Ukraine and Russia are both parties to the Open Skies Treaty. Not that Open Skies Treaty. The other one. The other one. The Treaty on Open Skies. So basically uh, 30-some-odd nations got together 20 years ago and said, we've had enough of you know, kind of this mutually shared destruction thing. Let's put together some sort of regime that allows us to monitor military actions by the other states. And so the United States and Russia are parties of these things. And so last week, I forget exactly where it started, but CNN kind of kicked it into high gear. There's a Russian surveillance aircraft flying over the capital, over Washington, D.C. And it was a Russian Tupolev T-154, that was conducting part of these Open Skies Treaty flights, and it became quite the
1: hubbub, which it should never have become because these flights happen all the time.
0: Yeah, I, I mean it. I, I guess it was an a lesson in interesting treaty obligations, if nothing else, and and just an opportunity to track a T one fifty four in the United States, which is really probably the only time that's going to happen.
1: Yeah, it also didn't help that some other media outlets, instead of using the correct picture, used a picture of the bear, which is Russia's yeah. very old, very loud, very propeller-driven nuclear long-range bomber. There's that. There is that.
0: Yeah, so it we, we got a lot of requests from a, a few different media outlets about the nature of this flight, and so we, we put together something pretty quickly to, to kind of dispel the myth that this is some sort of strange happenings. You know, the, the interesting thing was it was it was flying over kind of, you know, flying over Washington, D.C. So that was neat that more people got to see it because up until now, most of the flights have been over on the West
1: Coast or in the central U.S. They should just get Google Maps and turn on the satellite layer. It's a lot cheaper. But they don't get to fly a plane if, if they do that. That's true. Then those pilots will have no job. Right. So, I mean, you know, it's there, there's work for these pilots.
0: So, speaking of new pilot, or I don't know, new pilots, but pilots <laughs> getting new work, the New England Patriots. Boo. Bu- <laughs> nah, we're, we're going to get so much mail. Oh, boy. <laughs> I don't know how many Patriots fans listen, but I, I'm sure we're going to get some some mail on that it's
1: okay i'm a jet fan i know we're terrible podcast at fr24.com so
0: the new england patriots an american football team which we might get some angry mail about you know our global audience talking about well that's not really football and and that's fine we'll accept that mail as well they bought two 767s because they got tired of chartering planes
1: well there's a little more backstory to it than that a Uh, bunch of yeah i'm sorry i have to one up you here a bunch of sports teams until this year chartered Fights with American Air, who this year said, screw all you guys, we don't need you anymore, we can make money using our aircraft on regular old commercial passenger flights. And they canceled a whole bunch of contracts for baseball, football, and who knows what else, and that kind of left a lot of teams like the Patriots scrambling to find alternate means and some other teams have gone with swift air or miami air and the patriots i guess they have enough money so screw you guys we're getting our own planes and that's exactly what they did now they get to paint a pretty great livery on it too yeah and
0: it's we'll toss a picture of that in the show notes because i will i will say that it is a, a good looking plane now but they're they're not young no they're both of the airframes that they so seven sixty sevens, both manufactured in nineteen ninety one, former American Air seven sixty sevens, both in storage for a while now, out of storage, refurbished. I, I, it's going to be interesting to see what the inside looks like.
1: Uh, apparently, they're all either in first or business class layout. I mean, they're not going to put economy on for their own people. For the well, for you know, maybe like the 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 equipment person or something. Yeah. It'll be nice. Yeah.
0: So so tracking those, they're former N39367 and former N366AA. Do
1: they, they re-register them? They will be
0: re-registered. N225NE and N36NE. And they, they have not flown. One's in San Bernardino and the other, I'm not exactly sure
1: where it is. I mean, they're old if they're from '91, but they're still newer than some 76s. American still flies today. Yeah, a-, a lot of them are from the '80s.
0: I mean, you know, if we've learned anything from this podcast, it's the it's not the age of the plane; it's how well you take care of it.
1: No, the the seven six we mentioned earlier in the interview with Dan that was actually one of American's newest built seven six sevens that met its demise, melting on the runway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, in this case, it's it's not. In that case, it wasn't the age of the aircraft that matters. It was the engine.
0: Yeah. So I mean, that's I'm I'm sure that the engines have been carefully looked after on these <laughs> yes. new on the new Patriot planes. Aircraft, k r a f t. Oh yeah, that was that that hurt in my sensibility area right there. Ouch. Because they they added an s. Aircraft, and and this is me standing on my soapbox for just a little bit. Aircraft is plural. Aircraft is yes. singular. Aircraft is plural. That's all I'm going to say about that. Moving on. Moving on to other people standing on their soapbox. Let's talk about something we talked about last time, which was the the wonderful baby boy being born on a Lufthansa flight from Bogota, Colombia to Frankfurt, Germany. The baby was born over the Atlantic. The flight diverted to Manchester. Baby and mother were, were sent to hospital, and the flight continued off to Frankfurt. And the, the question that you brought up was... What nationality is the baby? And we still have no idea. Well done. <laughs> we, got, we got over a dozen responses that ranged from helpful to more helpful, I guess we could say. To funny. Yeah, to, to funny. And, and I think that... so. What what it really comes down to is no one can answer the question because we don't know the citizenship of the parents because right. it, it really depends on the citizenship of of both parents as to where the baby gets citizenship. So the the best answer that we could really that we could really get came basically from someone who said that this is an international baby of mystery.
1: That's right. So, it doesn't so, need a country. It belongs so Elliot, to the world. thank you
0: for that. that was Elliot who wrote in to tell us that this was an international baby of mystery so we we appreciate that <laughs> helpful <laughs> it was it was an interesting thought exercise and and I thank everyone who took the time to to think about it and then write in thanks everyone so now that we've recorded, I guarantee something's going to happen tomorrow.
1: Oh, I mean, I'm waiting for it in the next half hour <laughs> so We'll keep you up to date on whatever happens
0: in the next half hour or whatever happens next on the next time of Av Talk. Thank you so much for listening. I am Ian Pechnik. And I'm Jason Rabinowitz. And remember, send all hate mail to Ian. Or podcast at fr24.com so we can both read it. Yeah. If you like what you're listening to, give us a rating, or a review wherever you're listening to the podcast, especially if you're listening on iTunes. It helps other people find it. We really appreciate it, and we'll talk to you next time.